0: Welcome to Advocation Change It Up, a new podcast series hosted by Dr. Karen Liller, a professor at the USF College of Public Health and director of the Activist Lab.
1: Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for the USF College of Public Health podcast series on racism, health and life. Our podcast from the Activist Lab is called Advocation, Change It Up. I'm Dr. Karen Liller, a professor at the College of Public Health and director of the Activist Lab, and I'm joined by one of our student advisory board members today, Nick Cropper. So how are you, Nick?
0: I'm great, Dr. Liller. Thanks for having me on.
1: Absolutely. So the Activist Lab at the college prepares our students to be exemplary advocates and leaders in public health. And if you just Google us at USF College of Public Health Activist Lab, you'll see all the educational programs we have, our boot camps, our seminars, our research on a variety of public health topics, and our advocacy and work to assure students have practice experience in the community at the state and national levels. This podcast involves talking with public health leaders and advocates whose work has led to great improvements in public health. We'll be talking in each podcast with a guest on a public health issue and we'll end each podcast by asking how we as the community can advocate for change. And I must add, the views expressed reflect those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the University of South Florida. Well, I can't think of a more important issue now than that of racism and its effect on our health and, for that matter, our lives. This series we have will feature leaders in academia and the community about these topics. And my guest today is Dr. Rachel Dubrowski. She's an associate professor in the Department of Communication in the College of Arts and Sciences at USF. Her research is rooted in a critical cultural studies tradition with a focus on popular culture like reality TV, television, social media, film, and more, and the role of surveillance, with an emphasis on issues of race and gender. Some of her work has appeared in the journals Critical Studies in Media Communication, Communication Theory, Communication, Culture and Critique, Feminist Media Studies, and Television and New Media. She is the author of The Surveillance of Women on Reality Television, Watching The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. She's the co-editor of the collection Feminist Surveillance Studies and is currently working on a book called Authenticating Whiteness, which looks at the implications of racialization and gendering in ideas about authenticity, with a secondary focus on surveillance, as a way of mediating authenticity. So, hello, Dr. Dubrovsky. Hi,
2: thank you for having me.
1: Well, we're very excited you are here. We know the role media plays in our lives, so we're really looking forward to this podcast. But first of all, I want to define structural racism for the listeners and then go from there. From the article from G. and Ford for the DuBois Review, structural racism is defined as the macro-level systems, the social forces, institutions, ideologies, and processes that work with one another to generate and reinforce inequities among racial and ethnic groups. Now, these structural mechanisms do not require the actions or intent of individuals. In fact, even if interpersonal discrimination were completely eliminated, Racial inequities would likely remain unchanged due to the persistence of this structural racism. And some examples are segregation, different employment opportunities, legal issues, educational opportunities, health care options, immigration, and more, and depiction of race in the media. So you and I, Dr. Dabrowski, have discussed how racism obvious racism and the more hidden or insidious racism has been demonstrated in the media in terms of characters and roles. Could you extrapolate on this issue for us? And I know it's been a while since you've worked with The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, but if you could say something about that and how this all relates as well to social media these days. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I tend to look at popular culture as offering us
3: a bit of a window into our world. So often I tell students to think about um, if you landed on Earth and had only 24 hours to get a sense of what was going on in our culture in the U.S., what would you think um, based on watching just basic cable television um, or Netflix or HBO? What, what would be some of the conclusions that you might draw Um, And so I think that uh, our popular culture can tell us where our anxieties lie as a culture and what are some of the things that we're most concerned about? What are the things that we're worried about? um, What are some of the things that preoccupy us? And so um, at the time when I was starting my work, reality TV had just kind of exploded onto prime time. Um, This would have been in 2000. And when I was starting to do my research for my dissertation, The Bachelor had just become really popular. And so I focused on that TV show as a way to talk about what was going on with women and gender in popular culture. Um And then do you want me to talk a little bit more about that? I can also go into some stuff about social media. Yeah,
1: just a little bit more about what you just said, your last sentence, and then into social media would be great. Sure. So um, I was interested when I started my
3: research and looking at women in television. And because The Bachelor was pretty much the most popular show on prime time that was putting the most women on display at the time, it seemed like a, a really good place to put my focus Um, I wasn't really necessarily originally interested in reality TV per se, um, so much as the most popular shows at the time, um, but that was when reality TV started. And so I ended up Mm -hmm. looking at reality TV um, and looking at how gender was being put on display on these shows. And that brought in questions about surveillance because reality TV is essentially... um, Filmed using surveillance footage. So you have camera people walking around, um, watching people 24-7, mm-hmm. filming their every move, mm-hmm. and then you get uh, an entertainment product that's made out of that surveillance footage. So I started to become interested in looking at um, the intersection of surveillance and gender, which mm-hmm. ultimately led me to social media.
1: And what do you see in the social media in terms of this?
3: Um I see sort of a continuation of what I was seeing on reality TV. So
2: Mm -hmm. this
3: idea of um, being comfortable being under surveillance, um, but also learning how to fashion yourself in a way that is consumable for the public, which I think is what a lot of social media does. Um, Social media is also another form of surveillance. It's data valence. Um, And so you're able to kind of, surveil, follow people through the data that they input on social media. And you have some similar displays happening where um, um, people are are sort of self-fashioning to, to be able to put themselves on public display in a way that will be um, consumable for a wider public. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is also interesting to me and has been interesting for a while, Um because when reality TV started was also shortly after 9-11. And so we had the uh, Patriot Act. And so questions about surveillance and our comfort levels Mm -hmm. with being under surveillance were not, when it comes to reality TV, just about entertainment products, but they also engage larger questions about how we feel. Um, Having people watch us, having people collect information about us.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And how do you think racism fits into this, obvious or insidious? Yeah, that's a great question.
3: Um, I will admit, when I started my research, I did not have a focus on race. Um, I should have. Mm-hmm. But I, I developed that as I did the work. <laughs> um, sure. What I found that was fascinating and disturbing to me when I was watching the Bachelor shows and studying them was that... Um, in the early seasons, and actually, this didn't change until recently, you would always have one or two women of color, um, but somehow they would always, by process of elimination, be gone by about episode three or four. And so mm-hmm. I started to pay attention to pay a lot of attention to the women of color and what was happening with them. And I found a number of mm-hmm. things. Um, one of them was that they they didn't ever appear to be viable romantic candidates for The Bachelor, Mm -hmm. they always somehow um, didn't do the right things. They weren't open enough or they were too aggressive um, or they just simply didn't have any camera time and we didn't see them except when they got eliminated. Um, Mm -hmm. So I was trying to sort of figure out how the logic of the show worked such that for some reason, the women of color were always eliminated by episode three or four. Um, mm-hmm. And so this was when I started to, to really think in detail about how television shows that are widely um, white-centered situate people of color. And um, started to develop some ideas about that, um, like the importance of having a backstory, the importance of of giving characters screen time.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, all of those things are, are part of how we construct um, people in popular culture when it comes to race, mm-hmm. how much space we give them, um, how much we invite the audience to empathize with them. Because, of course, if you never show a person on screen and never allow them to tell their story, right. then the audience isn't invited to sympathize with them. Mm-hmm. Or to identify with them. Yeah. And so you get a form of racism happening there.
1: Yeah. And I know that the bachelor and the bachelorette were heavily criticized for this um, over the years. Yep. And they just yep. recently, which, you know, as you were saying, you were looking at this around 2000 or so, and, and they just mm-hmm. recently have changed this, right? Where now they have women yep. of color as the uh, bachelorette, I believe. And uh, yes. so, yeah. So it's, it's, it is quite yes. interesting. It took them quite a while to uh it
3: took a long while in some lawsuits as yeah. well
1: huh. Okay. um
3: and i know that their latest i think that the latest bachelorette um is also going to be a black woman mm-hmm. um so that will be the second time that they've done that okay i will admit that i have not watched the show recently <laughs> um, <laughs> so i'm not up on the latest right um but my sense is that They've sort of included diversity but they haven't really tackled some of the issues um, that they would need to tackle and you know one of the fascinating things about reality TV is that you get it is one of the the TV genres and actually the entertainment genres mainstream where we've gotten the most diversity Mm -hmm. so there's actually been more diversity on reality TV than in most other genres Mm. but I would suggest that it's also a place where we have gotten the most narrow types yes. of representations of people of color. So just because we have more people of color doesn't mean we get more different types of representation. Right. What seems to happen is we're getting repeatedly the same stereotypes over and over, like the angry black woman, mm-hmm. which is all, you know, every reality TV show that has a black woman that's most often the character
2: Mm -hmm. that she's
3: portrayed as Mm -hmm. so yeah and for me that's particularly dangerous if you're talking about a reality tv show because it's very hard to criticize a reality tv show for being racist since it uses real footage of
1: real people that's right that's very true nick do you have some questions
0: Absolutely, um, Dr. Dubrovsky, You mentioned uh, you started to get a little bit into how white-centered TV portrays people of color, particularly uh, women of color. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about how the how reality TV and uh, media in general portrays women of color in contrast with white women, and how does that difference impact how uh, women of color see themselves?
3: Right. So I'm. Uh, that's a great question. I'm only gonna. I'm only gonna address the first part only because my research doesn't really allow me to <laughs> get, assess what the impact might be on real people because I I stay away from studying real people, so I remain <laughs> within the realm of of the TV shows. Yeah. Um, but that's a wonderful question, and it's something I've been thinking about um, a lot because I most of my recent work has not been on reality TV. Um, I've been looking at scripted shows and mm-hmm. films to look at um, how how women of color are portrayed. And for the most part in mainstream media, the biggest portrayal of women of color that we get is black women and then Latina women.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so
3: a lot of my work has looked at, at black women uh, in contrast to how white women are presented. And, you know, what I find is that... Um, We will get women of color presented in white-centered media, but the ways that they're portrayed are are usually highly problematic. So one of the shows that I've been looking at recently, it's actually a a bit of an older show. It's called Unreal, and it's Mm -hmm. on the Lifetime Lifetime channel. I don't know if you've heard of it.
2: I have. It's a
3: script. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's a scripted show. About the making of a fake reality show mm-hmm. that is modeled after The Bachelor,
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. right? So,
3: <laughs> so it's got it's got a lot of nuance. One of the things that's fascinating about it is that it it um, it sort of sells itself as explicitly dealing with with racism and sexism, specifically in the television industry and specifically in the reality TV industry. Mm-hmm. And so it tackles head on race issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was fascinated by this show. And so one of the things it does is it shows the racism, particularly against black women and a little bit Latino women um, on reality shows. But what I found when I did a close analysis of this series was that it, it fetishized the women of color only to show the issue of racism. So oh. they were present in the storyline to sort of raise the problem of racism in the television industry, mm-hmm. but they didn't actually get their own storyline. They didn't actually oh. get to tell their story. They didn't have
1: a real role then, you know, it's just, no. yeah, to show issues of racism, I see. So yeah. so not providing yeah. a role kind of still perpetuates, right, this idea yeah. of racism. It,
3: yeah, because I think that... Um, I think that the invitation to the audience on these shows is really important.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, And one of the aspects of that is who, which, which characters are, or even on a reality show, which participants, because we know that they're edited, right. They're essentially characters. Right. And so which ones are given the most screen time Mm -hmm. for one? Mm -hmm. Um, And which ones do, do we get a lot of personal details about? Because, you're not going to sympathize. The audience is not going to care about a character that they know nothing about, right? Or whose backstory they don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are these are different different sort of more subtle ways um, of giving us very flat characters of color that that ultimately end up being highly problematic,
1: right? Do you have any questions, Nick, on this topic? No. All right, good. So let me move on now, uh, Dr. Dabrowski. You know, you and I also talked about this concept of whiteness. You haven't mentioned that yet, but I know mm-hmm. we will, not mm-hmm. only in media, mm-hmm. but in politics. And I know yeah. that we can expand on this and how it might relate to the uh, very tumultuous presidential election we just had, yeah. and I guess we're still having in some in some ways. Unfortunately. Yes. And that kind of goes back to politics and the mainstream media, right, perpetuating this concept of whiteness. So I thought it was really Mm -hmm. interesting when you talked about that, because I hadn't thought about it like that until we talked.
3: Um, I mean, I, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people are saying this right now, that um, a lot about the current administration involved, questions around whiteness, and I would say also masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a sort of quick and easy way to think about it is that um, it would be very hard to imagine Barack Obama making even one of the tweets that our current president has made and remaining in office. Mm-hmm. It's, it's there. There is a Space, and I talk a lot about space when I talk about whiteness because I, I do think it's about the space that people are able to occupy and take up
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, and I think whiteness is able to take up a lot of space in the popular consciousness and also has the ability to, to make more mistakes publicly and do a wider variety of things and not be as severely criticized or shut down and so I think our current president really illustrates that the capacity of whiteness and masculinity to do all of these things and still remain president Mm -hmm. um, and even be elected. And so I think if you, if you think about Obama doing any of this stuff, there, there is just, there's just no way Mm -hmm. um, a body like his is not able to occupy public space in that way. And I think you get this, a similar thing if you think about Hillary Clinton. Mhm. I mean, you just imagine if she ever expressed some of the anger that we get from the current president, um, right. she would be called too angry or too hysterical or mm-hmm.
1: unbalanced or can never handle and, the office. You know, if she's going to respond right. that way, then how could she yeah. ever handle a international crisis or something? Yeah.
3: Yeah. And and the other really the the thing that is striking me the most the more I sort of think about this is that people do say those things about our current president. That's the thing. It's not that they don't say those things.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: But it doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> or it doesn't matter as much. They can He can still be all of those things, be highly problematic in ways that are publicly called out, and yet he's still in office doing the things he's doing.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
3: have a hard time imagining... Any other body than a male white one being able to do that, yeah. And so I think whiteness is very important in all of this.
1: Mm-hmm. And the and the mainstream media really has perpetuated this, right? Because of all their yeah. coverage, um, um, of it, sort of giving life, even more life, to to some yes, of these right. things. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I, that's one of the things that I have found increasingly frustrating is um, there's a there, the the media that is critical of the current president is, is also very much obsessed with all of the details of all of the ways in which he massively fails or does things that are distressing.
2: Mm-hmm. But there's
3: like a, an obsession, right, with detailing it, um, which I think is
1: is not helpful, right. And, and continually portraying it over and over. Okay, mm-hmm. Nick, do you have questions on this? Yeah,
0: so Dr. Dubrovsky, earlier you uh, talked a little bit about uh, data valence, uh, surveillance on mm-hmm. social media. Um, can you help us understand a little bit more about how data valence might be used to target people of color on social media to feed them disinformation for political gain, to for political chaos?
3: Sure. Yeah. Um, So data valence, I don't know if you wanted me to explain it just a little bit. Sure, sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. I can just give the quick definition. Um, Data valence means um, surveilling people through their data. So the data that they input in Mm -hmm. cyberspace um, allows us to kind of track their movement. So things like, uh, you know, purchases made on Amazon. Um, every purchase you make allows uh, Amazon to <laughs> <They> track <know.
2: laughs> what yeah. you're buying
3: and what you like. Right. Right. Um, so that's a form of data valence. And so when you're on social media um, and as you know, you know, Facebook, every, every bit of data that you, you put in there, not only do other people get to see it that are in your, your network, but also you get the app, ad- the targeted advertisement, right. which right. is another form of data valence. Mm-hmm. Um. And so the question that you're asking, Nick, is about how how does data violence sort of implicate um, people of color? I think. And so uh, that's an interesting question. I think that I would um, I would flip that to say a little bit that um, online spaces have proven to be particularly unsafe for women, and particularly for women of color. Mm. And so, um, you know, a couple years ago, we had GamerGate,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, which I don't know if you've heard of, but where um, a bunch of, of women in the gamer community were targeted, um, and 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 we have gotten different iterations of that. Um, I think online spaces. Enable a kind of amplification of some of what we see in other spaces. And so, what we have seen are women, especially women of color, um, getting threatened online, um, sometimes by anonymous posters. Mm. Um, we've gotten doxing, so sometimes their personal addresses will be posted. Mm. Um, a lot, a lot of rape threats. And oh. so what I would suggest is that the, the m- most vulnerable members of our community, typically in any spaces, this gets amplified that much more in social media spaces.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, mm-hmm. And so it affords uh, a place where these things happen and and can really put at risk um women and particularly women of color, there have been instances where people have had their, their addresses posted publicly. And especially now when we're talking about, you know, the, a lot of the big um, social movements that are happening, right. the organizers of Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter. Um, we've had, we've had a particularly black women organizers who've been uh, targeted, um, some have been harassed some have been murdered I think we recently had one in Florida mm-hmm. an organizer I, I, I heard about Jackson's
1: that
3: yeah mm-hmm. yeah wow um, so dangerous politically
1: stuff, yeah yeah, yeah. very mm-hmm.
3: dangerous and because a lot of the activism also happens on in online spaces
0: right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Um,
1: any more questions Nick
0: Um, I've got one more for you. And actually, Dr. Lillard, I'd like to bring you in on this one. Um, This is a podcast, of course, about uh, health as well. Uh Um, Dr. Dubrovsky, if you could tell us um, a little bit more from your perspective about how uh, mass media and social media being able to broadcast videos of police brutality against African Americans uh, and white supremacy marches, um, how... Is that coverage racial, racialized both on social media and in the mass media? And Dr. Luller, how is that coverage impacting the mental health of people of color? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
3: Oh, well, what a good question.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, a great question. Can I
1: ask, <laughs> yeah, you go can first. Can I ask you, you, Nick?
3: Yeah. Nick, can I ask you a little bit um, just to, to say it or clarify for me which part you would like me to talk about? So you want to know a little bit about the the coverage of police brutality and sort of the kind of violence that we're seeing in video form. Yeah, and um, just
0: kind of help us understand uh, how that coverage is being racialized. Uh, there's obviously a lot of white spaces right. in mass media um, where you're going to get a very different spin on a video of a police officer brutalizing an African-American than you would maybe in a social media sphere that's dominated by people of color. Um, how is that changing okay. People's perceptions
3: um that's a great question um i can i can talk to the parts that that i'm seeing which are more on a, a personal level in terms of social media and how they, so i haven't studied this this part um but with the murder with the murder of george floyd Um, I did have some personal social media experiences that I found um, they made me think a lot. Um, And so one of the things that that we're seeing is that the visuality of these displays um, have implications and communities of color, particularly black communities, um, have asked that these images and particularly the videos not be shared on social media because they're, they're traumatizing and they're Mm -hmm. re-traumatizing. And so I have seen, and uh, Dr. Lillard, I think I'm verging a little bit into your question, but but I, I've seen some of these conversations happen on, on social media Mm -hmm. um, where people are, trying to address the issue of police brutality and racism by displaying the videos to show the horror of it. Um, And then other people are sort of asking them, and these are white people asking them not to post these videos because they're traumatizing. Um, And so I think that there's, um, I don't know. I think that there, there, it is disturbing to me that we need the visuality to understand that some people need the visuality to understand the full implications of what's happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also disturbing to me that particularly white people feel that it is appropriate to use those images to amplify the brutality of what is happening. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that we've known we know through the numbers without even seeing the images that this right. has been going on for a long time. We should be worried already without needing to see the right. images.
1: The horrible images. At the same
3: yeah. Yeah. yeah, at the same time I recognize that it is the it is the visual and very public nature of uh, George Floyd's horrific murder that also <laughs> Brought about a lot of important True. activism.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So it's 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 complicated, and I think one of the questions is also to ask why why this public execution at this time when we have many many others and we have the videos. Mm-hmm. What what was it about? And I don't have an answer, but what was it about this one? And I think part of it is the pandemic. I think part of it is right. that people had time to really. Let it sink in, and had time mm-hmm. to go out into the streets and protest, even mm-hmm. though it was dangerous. Potentially, um, they didn't. Many people didn't have the usual constraints of job structure or, you know, business travel. You know, people people were were home and able right. to go out into the streets. Right, um, and more people were watching the news, and it, I I think there's a confluence of Things and of course, there was a lot of anger about the current administration. I think that the, there's a meeting point for those things at that particular time that mobilized.
2: Mm-hmm. At the
3: same time, I'm disturbed that it took that um, for yeah. people to finally seemingly get what a problem this is.
1: Yeah, that was a shame. And as for the mental health aspects, um, Nick, I think, oh, I, I think they're huge in so many ways. Um, you know, children as we've heard on on one of these podcasts with Dr. Salinas, Adverse Childhood Experiences, or ACE, when I see those things and I see children in traumatic situations, if they're part of the group that's being traumatized or whatever, I worry that this is exasperated, right, in them. And I worry that this becomes yet another trauma that they're going through. And um, and racism itself, if you're the victim of racism or structural racism, it's like trauma, you know, that you continually have over and over and over. And, you know, they've done lots of studies on this that have shown how how that affects people, right? Whether it be their stress levels and then a failing immune system, you know, stress is very harmful. And so what happens is, you know, people don't do well after a period of time, especially people that have been exposed to to all of this racism throughout their whole lives. And I think seeing these portrayals of these murders, as Dr. Dubrovsky said, while it did awaken some people to say, oh my goodness, that is pretty bad. You know, like she said, this has been going on. It it wasn't like this George Floyd was like case number one, right, it was horrific, it was awful. But I think many cases happened, happened before that, so I think that um, showing this over and over. I, I, you know, I sometimes look at the, the TV, the media, and say, we, we saw it. Now, what is, what is it becoming? Is it becoming just an attractive element in some way so people watch the show? You know, it's sort of like you never want to look at a, a car wreck, but sometimes you go by and, and people tend to look. They just want to see it or, or, or whatever. Um, it's, to me, though... We have gotten the message, I think, and it's time now. I wish all the energy that media puts in to showing these things, you know, for ratings sometimes, I wish they would put in to talk about actions we can take to decrease the incidence of these types of events. And definitely an effect on mental health. I think, in fact, COVID itself, Dr. Dabrowski's right, These racial unrests were compounded by COVID because people were home. People are already, this is a great period of time of stress. People are uneasy. People don't know what the next day is going to bring. You know, you turn on the news and it's like, oh, so many thousands more cases and there's more deaths and oh my goodness, when are we going to have a vaccine? This, you know, these are things that you didn't think about really before. But compound that then with the murder of George Floyd. It's a huge stress stressor for many many people, and especially uh, people of color. And so, yeah, I, I think it has a I think it has a definite effect. In fact, I do research on gun violence, and what we have seen is, in um, fact, I'm going to give a talk pretty soon on how this amount of stress has caused some people to go out and buy weapons. Right when we when we look at the numbers, and the reason why they're doing that, the reason why people are purchasing weapons is because they are uneasy you know, they're afraid. I mean, my goodness, the world they feel has turned upside down. They want protection. And so unfortunately, that leads to a whole nother set of problems when more guns come into the home. And so you've got all of that with, you know, there tends to be increasing suicides, homicides, that sort of thing. So yeah, I think the mental health of this is something that we will be studying for a long time with covid Um, And we just had a lunch and learn that if folks want to listen to on the Activist Lab website um, that Nick uh, developed uh, with with another uh, student advisory board member um, on the topic of mental health and COVID-19. So, um, yeah, definitely in effect. So that's a good question. Thank you. Thank you both for your very (laughs) thorough answers. Uh, Thank you. So, Dr. Dabrowski, what do you see in your research might be the future for how different races and genders are gonna be portrayed in the media? And will you be studying in your research some of these future changes, which I hope are for the better?
2: I
3: hope so too. I, <laughs> I don't know what, what the future holds. I, so I tend, <laughs> I tend to think that the future <laughs> usually holds some version of what we've already had with yeah. a slightly updated version, and so you know, one of the things that I've I've tracked in my my research is, you know, so we got reality TV, which was a, a new genre, but essentially we were getting the same types of representations, but in a slightly new format. Um, and so, and I see that with social media as well. We're getting many of the same types of displays, but we're getting them in a different format. Right. Um, and so I'm I. I'm curious when it comes to media, what's going to be the, the new iteration of old things, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, and one of the things that I am interested in looking at at this point is, you know, coming out of this, what I think of as a bit of a post Floyd moment
2: mm-hmm. Um,
3: mm-hmm. with, with all of the activism, incredible activism of Black Lives Matter, Um, one of the things that we have seen are um, a lot of public acknowledgement by celebrities, by big companies, Mm -hmm. by institutions, Mm -hmm. by by USF, by all of these organizations Mm. that structural racism exists and that we need to do something about it. And so, I some of the the work that I'm thinking of doing now is to look at what is that going to mean. Um, And one of the things I suspect is that we're going to see some of the same old issues that are going to recur. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's sort of built into the setup because, as we talked about a little bit earlier, you know what did white people think was happening prior to Floyd's murder? These are not new things. Mm -hmm. And yet there's a a seemingly a a reckoning of sorts right now. Um, And so I'm, I'm curious what that's going to bring. And I'm, I, I am a little bit apprehensive um, about what's going to happen. We've, we've seen some of these attempts, um, Really fall flat and fail. There was a, I've been looking at a, there was a celebrity video that came out called I Take Responsibility,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, where all of these white celebrities talked about how they took responsibility for the racism that they supported um, implicitly or mm-hmm. explicitly. And It was a terrible video. It was widely panned. Um, Black Twitter quickly took it up and just made the funniest spoofs about it.
2: Yeah. And so I'm (laughs)
3: curious at how this is also good. There's some possibility for some good, but I think there's also a lot of possibility for some not so good. And um, given my interest in looking at whiteness, this is one of the things I'm particularly interested in looking at. Mm -hmm. How, How are white people going to contend with this kind of necessary call for white people to be accountable, Mm -hmm.
2: which
3: I don't know that white people are going to be very good at it or very effective. So I'm I'm curious to see how that's going to unfold. And that's where some of my attention is going to go next, I think.
1: Yeah. That'll be really fascinating to watch. I'll be watching that, too. I'm very curious about how media will change, if they will change. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. so much is about dollars and money and what makes a profit. I mean, that all comes into it, too. So so we'll have to have to see about if that happens. But, you know, um, as a community, though, Dr. Dabrowski, you know, here we have students, and I'm going to ask Nick about students in a minute, but You know, what? for the Activist Lab or just for the advocacy that we do, what can we do so that even though the world may not change, but our community can change? What are some things we could do?
3: I don't have a great answer to that question, (laughs) and I've been thinking about it a lot because I knew it was coming. Yeah, (laughs) Um, okay. (laughs) um, I think, you know, I think that this election um, has been... Has been both motivating and devastating, right? For people who are wanting to be activists about some of the issues that we're trying to deal with, and here we're mm-hmm. talking about racism. And so I am I am both inspired and devastated by this election. And I I think that one of the one of the really important things is to not think that um. Because Biden won the election, that democracy has succeeded and won. I think that right, <laughs> this is not the end point. This is right. this is the beginning, and so I am just hoping that people don't sit back and think right. the system and is stop. working.
1: Yeah, the system yeah.
3: is not working, and um, this election proved that it's not working. It also proved that it's surviving but it needs a lot of work. And so I think, you know, I I am incredibly inspired by the, the activism of Black Lives Matter and what has happened all around that. I mm-hmm. hope that that continues. Mm-hmm. Um, I am inspired by people questioning what needs to happen and what has happened. And I think people need to keep doing that questioning. Right. So I, I, I guess the, the thing that I would encourage the community to do is to keep doing that work. The thing right. that I fear yeah. is that the work stops when we kind of go back to some kind of sense of normal ish that we just yeah. kind of say, okay, we're, we're good. We're not. Um, right. and so I would urge people to not stop that work.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's so true, uh, and, and it is, you know, with the election of, uh, of, of Biden and Vice President-elect Harris, I think those are really good steps in the right direction, but I agree with you. I've already seen some people say, well, there it is. Now we're normal again. Now we're good. You know, everything will fall into place. All the differences we had for these last administration are gone, so now we're good. But, you know, as you and I know, and, and a lot of advocates know, that's not the case.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In fact, we may have to even be stronger, right? Because there'll be a lot of even more people against us now. That's what <laughs> I think. Right, yeah. yeah think, we, we have to be even stronger than we were. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. think we're
3: going to have to figure out, I think, you know, I think there's a tendency with progressives to dismiss Trump supporters. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think we are going to have to figure out how to take, take them very seriously and figure yeah. out how to address the underlying issues um, and their structural issues. And I don't think we can, we can dismiss that many people who
1: have, you who, know... Who, yeah, who did vote, who did vote, yeah. right, for Donald yeah. Trump, um, quite a few. Like more than yeah. I think anybody ever thought, so so it yeah. is a it is a real thing, and I think we just have to to keep going. So Nick, yeah. let me ask you a question. Um, so, you're a little bit younger than Dr. Dabrowski and myself, a little, just a little bit. Um, so, but you have more the pulse of the students, I think, about these issues. And, you know, students now, I'm so impressed with the younger generation, um, Dr. Dabrowski, with not only, as you say, their involvement in things like Black Lives Matter, but also March for Our Lives, you know, which has to do with the gun violence, which was, a, you know, started off with, with Folks, 19 years old, 18, 17 years old. Nick, do you think students are ready now to advocate for change in this issue? Or do you think as students, you think it's important and then you'll let it, you'll sort of forget about it. It'll fade away.
0: I am absolutely certain that students are ready to advocate for this. That's good. (laughs) We have seen the Black Lives Matter movement be one of the largest uh, racial protests in history. And it's overwhelmingly young people Um, As you mentioned, the March for Our Lives movement was started and is driven by young people. Um, We spend a lot of time on social media nowadays, and for better or worse, social media is a lot more democratized. Uh, We have a lot more ways to get our information. Right. Um, We've been finding diverse sources of information. We've been starting movements online that wouldn't have been possible a generation ago. Yeah. we, we're we ready for this. And I think that this most recent election and the failures we've seen in the last couple of years have really engaged young people as voters. And I think that that's going to make a big difference in the long run.
1: Yeah, I do too. i have always saying that, you know, it's it's going to be this next generations that move this further, you know, and, and the work that I do in, in injury prevention and violence prevention, you know, I'm saying that sometimes you got to let a few generations go by, but it's that next generation that's really going going to, to I think, make things so much better. So, well, do you have any other questions, Nick, for Dr. Dubrovsky? Not today. Thank you, Dr. All Dobrowski. right, Thank you so much. Hey, on behalf of the USF College of Public Health Activist Lab, our wonderful and informative guest, Dr. Rachel Dobrowski and our student co-host, Nick Cropper, we thank you for joining us. And hey, keep listening. As always, we would love to hear your feedback. We want to know how we're doing. So let us know by emailing us at cophactivistlab at usf.edu. And I hope you all have enjoyed this podcast series on racism, health, and life. So until next time, this is Dr. Karen Liller. Remember, find your voice. Let's change it up for the better. Keep listening and join Advocation Change It Up. Tell your friends and family. We're on all places where you can find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and more. So thank you again. And hey, when it's safe to be out and about, come see us in the Activist Lab.